Hi, and welcome to another episode of Crop Chats. I'm Neil Spicecare from Kramagas Systems, and this time I'll be talking to Gershon Ben Karen. Gershon is a fifth degree black belt in Kramaga with over 20 years of experience. He is the owner of Kramaga Yashir, which has been in operation in Boston since 2008. In addition to his wealth of Kramaga experience, he's a security professional, a master of psychology, and a second degree black belt in judo. He also authors a popular Kamaga blog, and his most recent book was released earlier this year. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this crop chat. How are you doing? Really good, yourself? I'm okay. Thanks for taking the time to uh, speak with us, and uh, I've been trying to get this one set up for a little while, so I'm very excited to, uh, to get it going. Good. All right, so uh, could you tell me a little about where you're from? Uh, so I was born in Glasgow in Scotland, spent most up to my teenage years living there. I then moved to England, basically went to university in England. That was in the north of England in a town called Sunderland. I then did my master's at a city just a few miles away in Newcastle. Came to London, lived there for a good number of years, and then about uh, nine years ago, moved over to the U.S., and I'm now uh, living and teaching in Boston. Okay, so uh, how did you end up in Boston in particular? So my wife's American. I'd been teaching in London for a good number of years. And one of the problems with London was the price of renting studio space. And you'd end up getting like bumped by a Zumba class at a gym or something like that. So your schedule would all have to change. To cut a very long story short, I wanted to have a full-time school and studio. Looking at places to do that, the U.S. was probably the most viable option for me at the time. Looking at U.S. cities where rent was affordable, Boston was one of them. At the time, there wasn't any really, how would you put it, Krav Maga from Israel. There was a lot of sort of franchise Krav Maga. So in terms of if I'd gone into New York, um, I would have been, as it were, just another one of those guys with that Israeli experience in Boston, that kind of gave me uh, a sort of a, a unique service and product to offer. Excellent. So uh, you have a pretty extensive background in the security field. Um, is there anything you can tell about how you got started with that? Yeah, I, it was all by accident. In fact, most of my life has been uh, just a series of accidents. It's not been very well planned out and thought. Um, so when I went to university, at the time I was competing nationally as a judoka. So right. judo was actually the, the first system that I learned that when I was about eight. Okay. The judo club that I went to in the town of Sunderland supplied most of the doormen for the different clubs and pubs. And being a student, I was short of cash. I was in the changing room uh, one Thursday when two of the guys who ran the security for one of the larger clubs sort of were bemoaning the fact that they couldn't get anybody to work. Right. And I, as a naive idiot, said, you know, I could do that. So they burst out laughing, but they were so short-staffed that they uh, ended up taking me on. And so that kind of started my work in terms of doing door security. Then when I graduated uh, from my bachelor's, it was a really bad recession, similar to the one that we had sort of eight years ago, where there was no work. So I ended up doing my master's, hoping to kind of ride the recession out. Came out, there was still no work. Uh, so the only jobs that were going were really uh, security. 
So I ended up being that guy sort of dressed in the admiral's uniform uh, at the front desk of certain companies. And then from there, with the contacts that I made, kind of branched out into doing uh, other work, such as close protection, surveillance work, then ended up doing a lot more training insecurity. And that was really sort of, that's what's led me to the point where I am today, where I do a lot of corporate training, a lot of uh, training for professional security, as well as teaching the Krav Maga to civilians. Right. Okay. So how exactly did you find Krav Maga? Was it uh, where you were or did you go to Israel to train in that from the beginning? So what happened was in 1993, I had a pretty bad accident Uh, on my back, which took me out of competitive judo. So I'm Jewish and thought this would be a good time to kind of visit Israel. And when I was there, I was staying on a kibbutz and there was a couple of guys who were on leave from the military who were practicing Krav Maga. So I approached them because I'm a martial artist, I'm interested in martial arts. Uh, And to be honest, it looked extremely sloppy. Uh, There didn't look to be a lot of form to it. Uh, So I was kind of interested in what this thing was. So they started to explain it to me, and I trained with them the next couple of days that they were there. Uh, I then came back to England and had a hell of a time trying to find anybody who even knew what it was, let alone taught it. And I was living in Liverpool at the time. There was an ex-IDF guy there who, through connections in the Jewish community, was teaching a very basic form of Krav Maga. And that was really how uh, I started out. So I, that would be about 1994, uh, where I was practicing Krav Maga, which was very basic 360 blocking, simultaneous punch, uh, lots of aggression, training, uh, and pad work. And I was trying at the time to kind of uh, fit it in to my judo. So at the time, I was really sort of a judoka practicing Krav Maga, that's kind of hence switched. Right. But that was really at the time the way that I was heading. How many years approximately did you start training uh, or did you train uh, before you decided to become an instructor? I probably trained about eight or nine years. And I, I know that's kind of like very different to the way that it seems to be today where yeah. people go and do an instructor course without any Krav Maga uh, background. Oh yes, absolutely. But to me, I, I guess coming from that very traditional martial arts approach, you know, I, I always felt, and I still kind of believe that you should have a time in the system and the art experiencing it as a student before you go on to teach it. Because obviously every system has issues, complexities, problems for a student to pick up on. Right. And if you've not actually experienced that, I think it's very difficult to sort of understand what a student's learning experience is going to be. So we might think that something like a a simultaneous block and strike with movement is really, really simple. But if you haven't gone through the process of and the pains of learning that, you're not going to appreciate your students' difficulty when they try to learn it. So I, I kind of believe that you should have that period of time training in a system before you become an instructor. That's not to say that uh, somebody coming with experience from another system wouldn't have the skills and abilities to perform the Krav Maga movements. But if they haven't gone through that learning experience, then they're probably going to have difficulty, you know, teaching it well. Absolutely. Yeah, I've I've found much of the, uh, the same experience. When I arrived in Hong Kong, there was really nothing here as far as Krav Maga was concerned. 
basically we started out with just a small group of guys who had trained somewhere else in other countries. We had one guy from the UK, another one was actually an instructor from the US. Uh, but we just had our little group and we trained in parks or whatever space, whatever small spaces we could rent. But eventually another organization came to town and they organized an instructor course. I, I contacted them about becoming an instructor and uh, it was a little bit, uh, I was a little hesitant to even contact them because judging by the guys who were instructors at the time when I was training back in my home country, they were yep. extremely high caliber before they were even considered for the instructor course. Right. Uh, so I, I figured what choice, I mean, what, what chance do I have? I'm just a P1, you know, it's, uh, there's no way I'm going to be able to do an right. instructor course. So I was hugely shocked when I found out that pretty much all of the guys who were on the course, save for maybe one or two, uh, had no experience with Kamaga whatsoever. And uh, here they were two weeks later as, as instructors. Um, that was much similar to my experience. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so when I did my own instructor course, it was it was really more of the same. Uh, it was pretty much two of us, two or three of us who had actual experience with Kamaga before and you know, it was it was yeah. it was disappointing a little bit. Um, <laughs> for, yeah, for, I had a lot of I had a lot of questions when I turned up, and obviously you end up speaking. My first instructor course was about thirty of us on there. Right, there was maybe three of us who had Krav Maga experience, uh, and there was a couple of people who didn't really even have martial arts experience. Right, uh, and you have your questions. As to you know, yes. um, how are these people going to go out and now uh, teach this? And I guess in one sense, it's a case of the ones who succeed succeed because they do have a background and an understanding, and those that don't really don't succeed. Right. Um, so I, I kind of look on it as like you know, hopefully the marketplace sorts everybody out into their sort of appropriate places. Yeah, one would hope so. Okay. And uh, what would you say, like, um, what are some of the main things that you, you say you'd do differently from mainstream Kamaga? So I spent uh, a good number of years training under Dennis Hanover and the Hisar Duke guys in Israel. And they're probably responsible for teaching, I would say, out of any association, more units and have more instructors than anyone else teaching Kamaga to the uh, IDF. And what they're really big on, and I would say this is what, we took away from them was the development of skills and abilities. Often what gets focused in the Krav Maga community is, is it's all about techniques. You know, who's got the best techniques? Right. Does this technique work? Does that technique not work? Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And what gets techniques to work is skills and abilities. And without those skills and abilities, it really doesn't matter what technique you're talking about. Right. It, it's right. not going to work. And I understand a lot of people will try and bypass skills and abilities using aggression and sort of saying, well, you don't need these skills and abilities because if you're just aggressive, yeah. this will work. My line is you can have the skills and abilities and be aggressive. And if you put that mix together along with the techniques, you've now got quite a potent system. Right. So we spend a lot of time actually developing skills and abilities. So a lot of times where you'll see certainly Kramaga in America where people aren't striking with form, we put a lot of emphasis on that striking with form. Right. Um, 
we'll also do a lot of things where, and, and people coming in don't understand why we do this, is we'll exaggerate the movements. And one of the reasons we'll exaggerate the movements in training is under stress and duress, when you're adrenalized, your movements will shrink. So sometimes when people come in, they'll look at the way that we're training and it appears quasi-stylized. And it's not, it's just that we're exaggerating movement. So when we actually adrenalized, that movement will come down to a more natural but still effective movement. Right. Uh, so you have, you have a blog where you share, you know, quite honestly, it's an amazing amount of information, more than I've ever gotten from most of my organizations that I've been a student of. Um, you have the blog. It's, it's probably a lot of work. Um, you teach classes by yourself. You, you write yep. books. And uh, how do you balance all of your work with, with other aspects of your life? How do you make time for everything? Well, the first thing to say, and, and this is going to sound like a very sort of twee answer, um, this kind of is my life. Martial arts have always been my life. Since I was eight, uh, when I was practicing judo, judo, kind of took over and was my life. Um, and whether I'd done other systems, karate, which I still practice and take lessons in, um, I love training and I love teaching. Um, I have my psych background, so writing about uh, violence uh, and security and self-protection, um, that's kind of a, a complete passion for me. And without sounding like I'm one-dimensional, that's a large percentage of my life. Right. So um, the time I spent with my kid, I've got a, a, a 10-year-old boy, um, we do judo together. Right. So very much uh, the aspects of my life are martial arts related. Um, and of course, as you know, I listen to music when I'm driving. Yeah. So there's always kind of like, um, I would guess, I would guess it's finding the sort of downtimes to do the other things. Right. There are times when you're not going to be able to train. There are times when you're not going to be able to teach. There's times when you, uh, your head isn't in the right space to write. Yeah. And my line is when I'm not in the space to do something, I do something else. So, Uh, at the moment, I'm writing the third book, which is a very difficult one for me to write uh, just because of the way it's organized. Right. And so what I found that I had to do with that is be prepared to put it down when it wasn't flowing and move on to something else. Right. And that was something that was actually sort of taught to me because I do a fair bit of uh, weightlifting, mm -hmm. uh, Olympic lifting. And I had a Russian coach and his line was, Always want to train, but if your body tells you it's not able to train, don't push it. Right. Take that as your rest day. And I think that's the way I try and organize my work. If my head's not in this, you know, I don't do it. Obviously, teaching, your head's always got to be in it because yeah. there's certain classes you've got to teach. Um, but that's how I try uh, and manage my workload and have the confidence that it will always get done. Right. The work will always get done somehow. Yeah. Um, so we know from, I mean, you're, you're very involved in the social media aspect of Krav Maga. I mean, you're in a lot of groups, I assume. And, yep. um, you know, you, you meet some interesting people in, in those groups. <laughs> uh, and, uh, 
sometimes, especially if you're doing, if you're with a group where there are a lot of Kamaga practitioners who are passionate about Kamaga and you show them something that's, that's different from the mainstream, uh, they will often say those dreaded words, yep. that's not Kamaga. Yep. Um, so, for example, in the case of Kamagaya Shir, um, which makes us in a lot of judo, and, and yep. I assume there are probably influences from other other martial arts. But uh, yep. what would you say to someone who says that Kamagaya Shir is not real Kamaga? I, I honestly, and I'm not trying to be controversial with this. I, I honestly don't care. Yeah, um, that's my very short answer. Yeah. I look on Kamaga, as it were, the traditional Kamaga, as a very good framework. And I look on the concepts and principles often more as heuristics, rules of thumb, than absolutes. Right. And I can give example of that. So one of the first principles I was taught of Kamaga was if it's a life-threatening attack, such as a choke or strangulation, you attack the attack. If it's a non-life-threatening attack, you attack the attacker. It's a great guiding idea, but at the end of the day, situations determine solutions. So if I'm in a crowded bar and somebody grabs me, now that, if I take as a principle, should tell me that I start attacking the person who grabbed me. Right. But if I look around that bar and see that they've got four other friends with them, that might not be the best solution in that situation. Yeah. And I might actually choose to attack the attack, such as trying to discreetly remove the lapel grab or hold so that I can move away and try and de-escalate. Yeah. What I would say to the people who say this isn't Kramaga, I would rather be relevant than authentic, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I've spent my life dealing with real-world violence. So I know that all these great ideas, at the end of the day, are good guiding principles. But when things actually kick off, there are things that are very, very difficult to pull off. And trying to make simultaneous 360 block and strike against somebody making a realistic knife attack where they're grabbing onto your clothing, they've got the other arm around the back of your neck, very, very, very difficult. And there are often more effective solutions in that situation than that traditional approach that you're aware of. Now, that's not to say that simultaneous blocking and striking doesn't have its place, but we shouldn't turn around and say it's the solution in every situation. Right. There are going to be times when that's not going to be able to work. Um, I see stuff where, again, talking what, just about recoiling of striking, recoiling of the knife renders a lot of movements are highly ineffective and often dangerous. And we have to look at the way we train and say, does that reflect reality? Or are we trying to make reality reflect our training? Yeah. Um, and I think when you start taking that approach, you don't try and fit the world into your Krav Maga. I think those people in one sense need to be out there questioning things from that traditional Kramnagar approach, right. but at the same time, it would be nice if people were a little bit more open, a little bit more understanding of where different people are coming from. But I'll give you another example on social media. There's a guy who runs a Kramnagar group, and he changed a photograph for the page to be one where uh, an ex-IDF instructor was 
uh, basically doing a gun disarm. And what he recognized in the photo was it was reminiscent of sort of the traditional cavalier right. uh, for knife disarming. And so he sort of changes the photograph and says, could this be a cavalier? And it's kind of that open question. And immediately, you know, it was like, no, cavalier is this, cavalier is that. Yeah. Rather than somebody just taking a step back and going, I see what he means. Right. The, the gun's being bent in the guy's hand. His wrist is being turned. Yes, if he held on to the gun, it would be an effective cavalier. Yeah. But I think people often get into that, it's not what I've seen. It's not how I was taught it. And because of that, they'll come out with the, it's not Krav Maga, where really I don't understand where, at what point do you draw the line and go, that's not Krav Maga. Yeah. I, I've never really understood that. So I understand people when they say it, um, but I, I think often it's kind of like jumped on a little bit too quickly and people don't see the sentiment or the idea behind things and get caught up just in the technique or the movement. Yeah, a, a lot of the time it seems to me like it's the old the, the old echo chamber where you know you, you feel a need to have have your beliefs validated by other people, and so it's an absolutely. easy it's an easy target to say uh, this guy's doing something different. It has to be wrong. You're absolutely right. I always believe that if you could get that individual to actually sit down at a table and discuss the context of what you're talking about, that's when they might turn around and go, ah. Well, maybe that is Krav Maga. And I've kind of had those conversations where people have been very uh, initially dismissive of something. And then when you actually engage them privately and explain, look, I'm not necessarily showing you my preferred solution. I'm showing you the solution that I'm forced to perform because of the context and situation. Right. And when you start having that open discussion, people start to become a lot more open. Uh, but I think social media... I have people who have responded to a title of a blog I've written without having read the blog just because they disagreed with the title. And that was fine because the point of the title was to have that kind of, oh, what's the guy talking about? Um, I've had people leave reviews for the books where it's very clear that they've only looked at the photographs and not actually read the context of the situation where this particular solution is being prescribed. Yeah. And I think that's the danger we're in as a society that we're very kind of like, we've got 10 seconds for everything and nothing longer. So we just look at a headline, we look at a picture, we look at a comment, uh, and we do that self-validation yeah. by sort of offering that comparison. Right. To me, it, to me, it always uh, seemed to come down to just, is it within the principles? As you said, it's, it, it's probably a lot more useful as a framework rather than just thinking that these are the techniques, that's it. You know, it's, uh, it always came down to me as what are you trying to accomplish and are you accomplishing it by following the principles of Kamaga or are you following the principles of another system? And uh, in the end, you know, it's the old saying, if it works, then it works. You know, it's... And, and, and what's funny often about when people are sort of saying, these are the immutable, definable principles of Krav Maga. And you then say, well, hang on a minute. I've seen a video or I've seen something you've written which goes against that. And they'll go, oh, yeah, that's because. And they'll come up with that 
reasoning and it's sound and logical reasoning, but it doesn't adhere to that principle that they've said, you know, must be followed in every situation at all costs at all times. Right. So a lot of people are actually using Kramagai in the same way in this framework, but not recognizing when they uh, change the response because of the context of the situation. So I think it's something we all do. Um, I'm probably just a little bit more obvious and open about doing it, which is probably where the criticism comes in. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes that Kamaga instructors make? My personal one that I wish would change is uh, the two-handed chokes, getting taught at the very earliest stages. Uh, and I fell foul to this because you go into a Kramagar class and as a student, you're naturally assuming that your instructor who's teaching this reality-based self-defense system knows what reality looks like. Right. And often the first thing that gets taught is two-handed front choke. I've got 23 plus years working in the security industry. I've talked with so many people about this and I've only had one other guy with a similar amount of experience and he's seen front choke two hands once. Right. And yet we, if we follow most syllabuses, teach that as a very first thing that people come in and learn. And the danger is that you start believing that real world violence looks like two-handed chokes. And I think when you've got students coming in for the first time who are trusting you to uh, show them what real world violence looks like and how to deal with it, that they can fall into the trap mindset of like, oh, I'm most likely to be attacked by somebody coming at me with a two-handed choke. Yeah. My line is, I don't think that technique shouldn't be taught, but I think it's more expedient when somebody first comes in to teach them something which is much more realistic, something such as a push with a punch, which to be honest is probably uh, from working door when you're looking at bars and pubs is probably the way that 90% of all fights right. start and go down. Um, so what I would like to see in the Kramagar community and the self-defense community in general is let's get back to what we actually are, which is a reality-based self-defense system. And what we teach should reflect and come from reality. Uh, so what I would love to see is a kind of switch around and those two-handed chokes get taught as a kind of uh, anomaly, you know, for very specific situations. Right. And I know I'm not alone in that in terms of even some of the higher belts of Vimy. I had um, Mickey Agilin, who was one of the first uh, 10 black belts that Imi awarded, come and do seminar. For maybe five minutes in the middle of a session on day two, he put the two-handed chokes in uh, from the side, from the rear. And, and he taught them all in like five minutes. I was driving him back to his hotel and I said, I noticed you kept that kind of as a small component, you know, towards the end. Right. Uh, and he looked at me and sort of laughed and said, ah, the historic Krav Maga. And he said, I teach it. It's useful for people in specific situations. And I thought, there you go. That's a guy with that wealth of experience who's coming from that very traditional Krav Maga background who understands what real world violence looks like. Right. Um, so that would be one of my big ones uh, to change. And I, I think 
maybe 20 years it might, uh, but I think most people are very set in the way that they teach. They've been taught to teach it early on and they will follow that prescription. Yeah. yeah. I've uh, I've noticed myself falling into more or less the same trap as an instructor and it's it's a very easy thing to do. Yes. Um because you get you get used to teaching a certain way, you have a certain way of teaching it and it's it's comfortable essentially. So Yes. It's it's to me it it comes down to to laziness and I I've I've caught myself doing it as well so it's it's not something that I exclusively criticize other people for but uh, right. it's it's feels like a very very easy thing to do and and once you get set in your ways it's it's almost like laziness just to I don't want to change I don't want to learn new ways right. of doing it so so I'll just teach everything that I'm used to teaching I I think the other thing as well is um one of my issues with the way a lot of kamagar gets taught again from that reality perspective is Everything gets taught from, or I wouldn't say everything, gets taught from this sort of element of you've been taken completely by surprise. Right. And I think that really goes back to Kramagar as a military system. Um, but if we actually look at social violence, so in the military, I, you know, a lot of things get taught from that sort of ambush perspective. Yeah. Um, where when we look at actual social violence and reality that most civilians are going to face, most fights occur face to face with some form of verbal exchange beforehand. And and that's true of even sexual assaults. I know we often present these ideas of a guy jumping out and grabbing a woman. But if we actually look at the reality, even those premeditated acts of violence have some form of dialogue right. uh, initially. So this idea of everything's happening from surprise, everything's happening from the rear. Yes, we do need to be able to deal with those situations. But again, we don't want to present just students that being attacked with a rear strangle by surprise yeah. is the way that violence goes down. Uh, so one of the things I would like to see, you know, generally is a lot more of that face-to-face type of training yeah. with some form of dialogue. And, and I could go on with a lot of other things, including yeah. retraction of the knife, realistic stabbing, rather than kind of sort of theatrical uh, from distance you know, attackers with knife are going to close range. Yeah. They're going to use their spare hand to grab you. You know, let Kramagar has those solutions. Yeah. Let's not kind of put them as higher level techniques, but teach them a lot earlier on because that's what reality looks like. Right, right. And uh, th- that echoes with my experience with the instructor course that I was on, for example, because they have a very specific curriculum and they yep. they tell you to teach just the formula and nothing else. That worries me a lot because you're certifying people as instructors who, yes, okay, they can replicate moves from the yep. curriculum. They can perform techniques. They can show them. They might even be able to teach them. But so much of self-defense is is not in the curriculum. So much of it takes experience and knowledge of other things aside from yes. techniques and so on. So that, totally that, that really concerns me that people are being certified as, as self-defense instructors and they have huge organizations backing them and saying that these guys are people you should learn from and 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 they don't have the first clue how to de-escalate a situation or absolutely or what to look for even in in someone who's uh, you know someone who might be carrying a weapon someone who's behaving suspiciously or synchronizing his movement with you they wouldn't they wouldn't even pick up on those things themselves so how can they teach realistic self-defense I think a lot of self-defense, you're absolutely right, gets taught as almost choreographed movements. Um, 
I also think one of the big issues with a lot of the instructor courses I've been on is everything's been like there's only one phase. You know, the person attacks you with a knife, you block it, you disarm it, yeah. situation's over. If you actually look at real-world violence, it's multi-phased. You know, it's the push that you didn't deal with followed by the punch that you managed to deal with, you know, followed by a this, followed by a that. And yeah. often real-world solutions when it comes down to the physical are sort of incremental solutions. I deal with that and get in a slightly better position. I deal with that and get in a better position. I deal with that, I deal with that. Rather than this kind of like you deal with everything in one movement and with one technique. Yeah. And I think that goes along with what you're saying about that pre-fight and pre-violence indicators that don't get taught. Violence doesn't get taught along that timeline. It gets taught as something that's a moment. Right. And if you look at everything before that precedes it, because the majority of violence that targets the individual is predictable. There are processes that people go through. Then, like you say, there might be the opportunity to de-escalate. There might be the opportunity to disengage. Then there might be the fight. And then there's the whole thing where in the fight, it's multi-staged. Other people might enter the fight. Somebody in the middle of the fight might pull a knife. Uh, you might kind of get caught. You might be running out of the door. Uh, one of the things that we teach here is we have um, a combat medic who does a kind of tactical medical to prepare you for that post-fight situation, whether it's you or whether somebody uh, you're with has been cut, shot, whatever. And I think if we could get into that idea that there's a whole timeline here and you're not just teaching this choreographed movement, but you're putting it into the context and you're teaching all of the stuff that comes before it and all of the stuff after, I think we'd be dealing with much more realistic self-defense and much more comprehensive self-defense. Right. That makes sense. Um, so since you have a master's in psychology and uh, I have to wonder how, how has that helped you both as a Kamaga instructor and just in your everyday life? Um, so when I went to do my master's, um, I did it really, uh, with the intent of looking at violent crime and assaults right. that was kind of working door security in a Northern England town, um, being perpetually confronted with violence. You sort of get that curiosity as to why do people become violent? How do they become violent? Why do they engage in certain violent activities. Right. So part of it was kind of for my own research. And I've always tried to stay up to date with that. I'm actually going back this fall to do another master's in criminology. And it's really to have access to that research so that the solutions that we look at are realistic solutions. One of the things I, I'm very fond of saying it, and I try and apply it to myself, is that experience is limited. I can talk about the violence that I've seen. I can talk about the violence that I've experienced, but by default, that experience is limited to me. What I've always tried to do is back up what I've taught by research, because that's kind of combining everybody else's experiences or the experiences of other groups. So where that's helped me in the Krav Maga setting is when we do scenario-based training, that I can actually set up realistic scenarios that have happened 
uh, which contain common component features of different types of uh, assault. Um, I'm a huge believer in that scenario-based training because it teaches and trains not only your ability to recognize pre-violence indicators, but also your decision-making through a situation. So I'll give you a good example. There was a, about 20 years ago, there was a rapist and his MO was to basically target women who were driving alone in rural areas which had bad phone reception. Right. And he'd rear-end the car. And where uh, predatory individuals are very good is they know our scripts. So if you're involved in a car accident, your default is to get out of the car. Right. Um, he would know that the person would be shaken, the car would be a write-off, the person would not be able to call any roadside service, and he would offer to give them a lift into town. Uh, obviously, once they were in the car, he would drive to a secluded place uh, and sexually assault them. Right. So... One of the things when we teach women self-defense is I can set up that scenario and I can tell the woman who's playing the role of the driver, you're driving along country road, da, 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 guy crashes into you, what do you do? And being able to take those real life scenarios and then take somebody through the decision making and how this guy was operating and the premises upon which he was operating, uh, I found extremely valuable. Right. So part of that master's program uh, allowed me time to look up people's research and also do my own. I was also involved in a fairly significant project that was looking at uh, sexual offenders in a maximum security prison in the north of England. Right. So uh, actually talking face-to-face -face with violent criminals and asking questions to them at the end of the day, you, you can't, as it were, get better than that right. in terms of finding out what the people we're trying to protect ourselves against are actually thinking uh, and doing. Yeah. And that's actually one of my reasons to, to go back to do uh, my master's in criminology is to gain what's the latest research and hopefully be engaged, uh, engaged in research of my own. Right, okay. So one of the things that uh, Kamaga has that perhaps many other systems don't, I mean, they're catching up now because uh, it's, uh, you know, the age of, yeah. of social media. There are so many guys <laughs> making videos and, and showing what they're doing. Uh, but Kamaga was was the first system that I was exposed to that had aggression drills and stress drills. Yes. Um, what sort of drills have, have you found the most useful out of out of the ones that you found through Kamaga? I think one of the things a lot of people don't recognize is that uh, training under fatigue to replicate the sort of effects of when your uh, adrenal system is dumped and then it's exhausted and your body's going into recovery mode. Right. Um, that was one of the things that kind of when I uh, first started doing like the instructor programs and this sort of was explained to me, I was like, that's absolutely spot on. Um, right. So... I've always tried to do aggression and stress drills which take you to that point of fatigue and then force you to be aggressive and keep going and keep going and keep going. Um, things that I found work really well um, is we do something called an accordion drill, which is you need three people, two people with kick shields. And basically, person starts off in the middle and the people with the kick shields just move in and out, so that like an accordion. Right. So they move to the center and they move back, so they're always moving. And 
basically you give that person two minutes to just attack full out on these moving pads. Right. After about 30 seconds, they've run out of gas yeah. and they've got to keep going. Um, and I found that probably one of the most effective drills for people uh, to be aggressive in. And one of the reasons I believe it's a case is when we go into that fight flight mode, we're looking to do big physical movements. So causing the person to keep moving back uh, between the pads as they move in and out sort of taps into that natural sense of the body wanting to do something. Right. Um, and I found that a very effective drill. And I think it's something the Israelis really clicked on was the ability to be aggressive uh, when fatigued. And if you look at things like even the design of the Uzi SMG, it was designed so an exhausted soldier could change a magazine on the run. Yeah. You know, I think they've always understood what real life violence is like and that you will be exhausted and you need to be aggressive in that exhausted state. Right. Yeah, one of one of the uh, most useful things that I've ever learned from Kamaga, and this was in my first lesson when I was 17 years old, and uh, that was my head instructor who told me, if you don't have the technique yet, compensate with aggression. Absolutely. So I, I definitely took that to heart, and I, I think that's one of the most important things I've ever learned from Kamaga. I, I would I would totally agree with you. Yeah. Um and, and what we try and do is then backfill during the time that you're working off aggression with those skills and abilities. So at the end of a period of time you have both these things. Um but aggressive mindset out of everything is probably the most important and I would put it above technique and I would put it above fitness. Right. Um if if you have that mindset, that ability to switch on, that is probably your greatest survival asset. Yeah. And and like you, that was one of the things when I went, Kramagar gets it. Yeah. You know, you're not going to be in a state of Zen calm. You know, you're not going to be in a relaxed state dealing with these attackers. You're going to be amped up. Yeah. You're going to be coming at them full aggression. And that's how every animal in nature survives yeah. by being extremely aggressive. And yeah, that was, uh, for me, one of the big attractions to Krav Maga. Yeah. Another, another example of a saying that, that I really took to heart was when attacked by an animal, become the bigger animal. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We, say, we talk about prey to predator. Yeah. You know, when you were targeted, you were targeted as prey. You can't remain in that state. Absolutely. You've got to reverse it. Make the other guy pray. Yeah, turn the tables. Yep. On the psychology aspect, one more thing. What are some of the things that you think Kamaga or perhaps Kamaga instructors, and I'm not speaking of the complete new guys who show up to a course and get their certification, but let's say experienced Kamaga instructors sometimes get things wrong about certain psychological aspects. Do you have any examples of that? The one I hear a lot is about time slowing down. Yeah. where people will talk about in that moment, time slows down. Um, there was an interesting study that they did on this. So obviously there's a lot of uh, ethical issues with scaring somebody or causing them to experience uh, high stress and duress. Right. Uh, it was a university in Ca uh, California and they have uh, next to them an amusement park which has this free fall tower. So basically you just free fall. Yeah. And they did an interesting experiment where they gave a person who was going to do this fall a counter 
where the numbers were moving just a little too fast for you to register. And the kind of testing was that if time does effectively slow down, you will be able to read these numbers. So these people were like free fall. I'm not sure what it was, but it was a decent distance. Uh, and they should have had time slowed down during that moment, being able to read the numbers. And nobody could. When they were interviewed afterwards and asked, how long did you think the fall took? Most people would say, oh, it was like uh, maybe five seconds. Yeah. When it was actually like just over one second. Right. So, uh, and this is just one of a number of studies. So what they've actually found out is it's your remembrance of the event where time slows down. Right. Not actually slowing down in the, in the moment. So I hear a lot of instructors sort of go, and time will slow down so that your mind can f sort through every potential solution uh, to the situation. Yeah. And, and, and that doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's a nice kind of idea, you know, but, but it doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, and another one from a practical point of view is uh, throwing the wallet away from you when mugged. Um, there's a number of reasons why not to do that. Uh, but one of the, the simplest is the person you're dealing with is probably on the lowest rung of the criminal ladder. Uh, most muggings, certainly in the US, are there to support a drug habit. And in every uh, violent crime, there are primary motivators and secondary motivators. Uh, obviously, the primary motivator for mugging is cash to get your resources. Um, but the secondary motives are power, anger, and control. So you've just basically responded to this person who's asked you to hand over the wallet yeah. by not doing that yeah. and throwing it away from you. Now, the person in that moment is probably one of the few times in their life they've had power and control. Right. Uh, many criminals will talk about targeting rich-looking people basically just to have that power and control over them. Um, so they're going to be fairly angry at that moment. They now don't need you because the wallet's away from you. So the likelihood is that you're going to be get cut or you might possibly get shot. Yeah. So I think when we understand how violent criminals actually think and not play common sense from our perspective, uh, we can actually come up with better solutions than throwing a wallet away. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the most important things that I've realized and that I read recently, it may have been Ryan Hoover or, or one of the others, but uh, he made a video out of criminals do not think like we do. And and I felt that was a very important point to make, and I believe that should be said more often. De definitely. And when you talk to criminals, it's not even that they sometimes have a better understanding. Sometimes they have a completely warped yeah. uh, view of the world. Their, their understanding is, is often misaligned with reality. And then you have all those... Uh, aggressive factors uh, at play as well. So yeah, it, it's a big one. You know, it's like when you ask people where would a mugging take place and they'll tell you down a deserted dark alleyway. Yeah. And that's where they would commit a mugging because they don't want to be seen. But there are no prospective victims in a deserted alleyway. Right. There's one possibly to escape routes. And when we look at the way criminals operate, they like to go to crime-attractive areas where there's a good number of potential victims, and they like to have a number of escape routes. Yeah. So you're absolutely right, Ryan Hoover, if he said that, absolutely right. Whoever said it, absolutely right. Yeah. Let's start not thinking how we see the world, but how they see the world. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and that's one thing that I found very uh, sort of disturbing about, for example, the mainstream media, where whenever someone commits, let's say, a mass shooting or another horrendous crime, they will often label the person as crazy and, yes. and, and sort of dismiss all of the potential reasons and, and things that he could have had that could have motivated him. And in, in, instead of trying to understand why or how this happened, they kind of dismiss it and, and just yes. say, well, he was crazy. So, you know, that shifts all of the work away from us so we don't have to do anything about it. And, and the shame of that is if you look at something like Columbine, that took 18 months to plan. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't obviously intended as a mass shooting. Uh, they were trying to basically replicate the Oklahoma bombing by Timothy McVeigh, which right. is why they chose the particular date. But that was planned. Uh, and one of the things is when we accept that, the uh, Secret Service in the US did a big study where they found that four out of five mass shootings, the person committing the shooting had told somebody beforehand. Now, if we understand that these shooters often tell people or show their intentions, we've got the ability to stop these things. Yeah. If we just accept that it's a crazy person, then by default, we don't believe there are any warning signs or indicators. Exactly. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah. If you had, let's say, you had the opportunity to get into the mind of every single Kamaga practitioner and instructor in the world at the same time, and you, <laughs> can, you can say one thing to them and, and they'll totally get it, what would you say? Uh, something that they'd all understand would probably be the aggression side of things. Yeah. I think that's the one thing that really does. I, I've never heard any disagreement on Right. Never heard that everybody gets that, that you, you need to come in at a certain level of aggression. What I do think some people don't recognize is what that level of aggression might have to be. Right. And I think that's one of the things where we can all agree that you need to be aggressive, but what's the level of aggression? Right. Uh, and my line always is, is you have to come in at a higher level of violence than the person that you're dealing with. Right. As simple as that. So I think that's something we all agree on, but don't possibly know what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to mention your books because I was I was a huge fan of the work that you've done with your books. Oh, thank you. And uh, I, I really found that there's there's a lot of information in there. I mean, people look at martial arts books and often they'll think it's just you know a collection of techniques. Right. And and of course, those of us who have experience with these types of things will know that if you read a technique in a book unless you go and practice it a million times and you get corrections on it. You know, we have limited use of it, but I found it very useful in the sense that there's there's so much more information on the really important parts of self-defense, which are the things that come before and after the, after the techniques and the hows and whys and so on. So yes. I, was, I, was, I thought those books were excellent. And I would just like to mention the names of the books, which is the first one is uh, Kamaga Tactical Survival, Personal Safety in Action. And the second one is Kamaga Real World Solutions to Real World Violence. And you can get these on Amazon at least. Uh, are there any other sources you'd mention? I think Barnes & Noble have them. You know, they're in most bookshops. Yeah. We're very fortunate that Tuttle, who's the publishing house, is the oldest and most established martial arts publisher. So in terms of having a network of getting books into shops, they're, they're pretty damn good at that. Okay, well, uh, thank you for taking the time to speak with us, and uh, hopefully we'll get to do this again. Yes, anytime, Elf. <laughs> <laughs>